let's uh, begin with a brief word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this time to gather around the Word of God, to shut out other thoughts, quiet our minds, and to listen to the teaching of the Word of God. Thank you, Father, for the work of the Holy Spirit, working through carrying along and superintending the writers of Scripture, including the Apostle Paul, so that the words that they wrote were not merely human words, but were, in fact, God-chosen words, so that the Scriptures are the product of the breathing out of the Holy Spirit. We pray that we might respect and heed the words of Scripture. Give us understanding, Lord, we pray. Illuminate our minds that we might understand the doctrines of the Scriptures, that our souls and our faith might be safeguarded against error, which could lead us into serious danger uh, spiritually and with regard to our salvation even. And we thank you, Lord, for providing these means to, to instruct us with the aid of the Holy Spirit. And we pray this, Lord, today in Christ's name. Amen. So today we're going to look at a doctrinal subject, and this is partly because I'm just here this one day and I can't really do a series through a, a book and do expository preaching in the normal way. And I wanted to, therefore, treat a doctrinal subject of great importance, great practical relevance today uh, because of the entrance of error and even heresy in some churches, which, in fact, I personally have seen now uh, firsthand. But before we dive into the details of this doctrine, I wanted to just set this up by way of a problem. There is a kind of practical problem in the life of many Christians in that there's a kind of disconnect, mental disconnection between the doctrine of justification specifically, maybe doctrines in general, but specifically the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Disconnect between that and living the Christian life day to day. It's surprising to me how many Christians express a kind of mental disconnect in this way. There's a lack of understanding regarding how this somewhat abstract doctrine has anything to do with how I live my Christian life each day. I wake up in the morning and I maybe I pray and I read the Bible and I try to think about, you know, uh, denying myself, taking up my cross daily and following him and, you know, doing things that are pleasing to the Lord. But then this 
truth, this doctrinal subject, how does that fit in? Like, how do I apply that? We live in a culture that's very pragmatic. American culture is very pragmatic. In, in other words, we focus a lot on doing. How do I do this? So we have this sort of thought of how to. You know, a book on how to do this or how to do that, it's very eye-catching. You see a book on, like, the secret of how to do this or how to live a godly marriage or how to overcome sin or how to do this. And you say, oh, maybe they know something how to do this. And you dive into that. But if somebody presents you with, you know, a treatise on the doctrine of XYZ, expounded, and proven from scripture, and say, oh, okay, it's very academic. Um, maybe I'll buy it, but I won't read it right away. <laughs> um, I'll put it off for some other day. The doctrine of justification has to do with our legal standing before God, our righteousness, righteousness in the sense of right standing. And therefore, the doctrine has this sort of legal dimension to it, which again is, is, is very abstract. We don't see our legal standing. We don't do our legal standing. It just is something that's true or false about us. And, and so it's very much in the mind. It's invisible. It's intangible. It's not something you do. So a person who's struggling with this question of how to apply it can end up just thinking, well, this is, you know, knowing this doctrine is, is sort of an add-on to my Christian life. It's not necessary. I can still live my Christian life the way I would anyway without understanding this. So I can just sort of put this, you know, take this book, <laughs> like this is the doctrine, and just put it up on the shelf here, on my mental bookshelf for another day because it's not that important. I'll still live my Christian life the same way regardless. Well, unfortunately, that is a grave danger to think that way, because the doctrine of justification is, in fact, the core. It's of the essence of the gospel itself. Now, a person who comes to Christ might not understand you know, the doctrine of justification because it's, it's, it takes some thought, it takes some study to learn it and understand it. But implicitly, a person who comes to Christ is saying, I acknowledge and confess I'm a sinner and I am putting my trust in Christ, specifically his death on the cross as an atonement, and I'm putting my trust in him, not in myself, not in my works. I'm putting my trust in him for forgiveness and for salvation. Now, implicitly in, in all of that, implicit in all that is the concept of being counted righteous. And, and that's justification. And so the justification cannot be separated from the gospel itself. It's, in fact the essence of, of the gospel. This is why the Apostle Paul spends so much time writing about it 
to the Romans. You read Romans multiple times, you begin to see the structure of the letter. He spends really chapters 1 through 3 up to verse 20 showing how all mankind is sinful, the universal sinfulness of mankind, Jews and Gentiles. And then starting in verse 21 of chapter 3, all the way through the end of chapter 5, he teaches really the answer to this problem, the solution. And he says, he teaches there the doctrine of justification. In other words, the gift of righteousness, that is legal standing of being right with God, as a gift that's imputed to you, by virtue of the death of Christ on the cross as our substitute. And so you receive forgiveness, and not just forgiveness, but righteousness in God's sight through faith in the propitiation, sacrificial offering of Christ on the cross. So Paul in Romans this, the first half of the letter is really the gospel. That's what he's writing about. But it's certainly dense reading when you first come to it. Um, and it, you know, it's somewhat unfamiliar way of thinking if you, if you are new to Christianity or haven't like, learned anything about you know, theology, as it were. You're kind of a n- new to it. So why do we need to know about justification? Because it's the gospel. What is justification? And that's what we're going to spend some more time on today. What does Paul mean when he talks about the righteousness of God as a gift that's given to believers? Not the righteousness of God, that is to say the attribute of God his justice, his uprightness, in terms of his being, that he is righteous. That's really not what we're talking about. We're talking about right standing that's bestowed upon you, and you're counted as righteous in God's sight. In other words, you're clothed with righteousness, like a white garment. You're you're still a sinner, really, in terms of your inner subjective state. You still have moral corruption. But God views you as righteous. You're righteous in his sight. You're reckoned righteous. So that's the fundamental issue that we're going to expand upon. But we want to look also at how this affects our lives. What difference does this make in our Christian life? What effect does a right understanding or wrong understanding of justification have on whether or not we go to heaven? Eternal life is at stake here, as we'll see, particularly from Galatians chapter 5. In particular, I want to bring up a a, a certain kind of error, indeed a heresy, that I have seen emerge among reformed circles. And this is the idea that a person is 
justified by faith alone. When you first come to Christ, you are counted righteous. You're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, like we all know and believe. But on Judgment Day, in order to get into heaven, in other words, final salvation, that last step, as it were, going to heaven and ultimately the resurrection, that, that final step requires works. So you're initially justified, but then at, in the end, on Judgment Day, you're judged according to your works in the sense, according to these people, in the sense that God looks at your works to see whether or not you had genuine saving faith. So your, your works are used as a kind of proof of genuine faith, kind of a vindication. Your works vindicate your claim that you believe in Christ. And so, God, so the works are actually used by God. God, in Judgment Day, reviews your, your performance to see whether or not you have fruit, fruit of saving faith. And if you don't, you would go to hell. And of course, you, if, if you don't have fruit, that means you didn't have faith, which means you were never actually justified. So you're not actually losing your salvation or losing your justification. But it is true that there's this final test or final check where you're, you're, you're examined based on works. And if you do have fruit, then it's like, check that off. You can proceed and go to heaven. Well, they don't use the word, but that's a kind of a second justification. You're justified initially. There's a first justification in this life, and you believe in Christ, and you're counted righteous by faith, by grace alone. We all agree with that. But then on Judgment Day, uh, you have to be justified again. It's a little different. It's just you just have to have some fruit that shows that you have saving faith, genuine faith. It could be anything. It's not keeping all the law or anything like that. But you've got to. You have to have some kind of um, authenticating fruit and prove yourself. So you have to justify yourself at this point. Your works, that's you. That's You have to do it. And it's doing something. It's not just hearing and believing. It's doing fruit. And if you pass that test, then you're counted, uh, you could say you're counted worthy not you know meritoriously worthy, but you know you're counted valid, authentic, worthy to proceed into heaven. And th- so there's a contingency called a kind of a conditionality or contingency on works that's real, <laughs> and works are necessary for final salvation. And so if you've heard of jo- you've heard the name John Piper, um, John Piper teaches this pretty emphatically. His staff. Reiterated, uh, and I'm seeing it repeated. Uh, there's a book here by Thomas Schreiner, who's a professor at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He seemed to be repeating it, although not as vigorously. Um, and I was down in the, at a Reformed Baptist church in a town near you, <laughs> south of us, 
and I was in the Sunday school class, and it, the class was about work, well, about judgment, how, how we're all going to be judged by our works. Even Christians will be judged according to your works. And we know that, but not for salvation, right? It's, you're judged according to your works as to whether or not you receive this or that reward. 1 Corinthians 3, you'll be tested by fire, you'll be saved yet as by fire. And if your works are made of straw, they'll be burned up. But if they're made of you know, gold, high quality, they'll survive the test and you'll be rewarded because you had quality fruit that could endure the fire. That's a strange vision. You know, that's a mixed metaphor there. But um, <laughs> you'll have works that are worthy of being rewarded by grace. It's still all by grace, but it's uh, measured proportionately to the quality of your works. But your salvation is not at stake. Your eternal destiny is not at stake here on Judgment Day for Christians because you've been justified already. (laughs) You're already reconciled to God. You're already adopted. You're a child of God. You already have assurance of salvation in this life. It's settled. It's not like there's a new conditionality on works at that judgment day for salvation. Uh, but so in this class, Sunday school class, you know, this, this topic was discussed, what happens to Christians on judgment day? How, in what sense are we being judged according to our works? And the emphasis was on the idea that, that it does mean that our eternal destiny is at stake. And the point that was made was that works matter. Works really matter <laughs> in this way of thinking, this error. I mean, and I say, well, yeah, works matter. That's not saying enough. That's, you can take that a lot of different ways, right? You could say works matter for rewards or works matter regarding heaven or hell. So don't just tell me works matter. That's not helping. <laughs> that doesn't help clarify the issue. But for them... That's, that language means works matter, really matter, for heaven or hell. And I was dumbfounded. I was sitting there and thinking, this is, this is supposed to be a Reformation-based church. You know, we believe in a Reformation, and we don't believe in Roman Catholicism. We're going back to Rome here, <laughs> where you just nullified assurance of salvation. You basically, when you say that there's a, a testing of your suitability for heaven later based on works, then whatever happened at your initial justification, so-called initial, that's kind of nullified. Like, who cares if I was justified? Because what really matters is going to heaven. And if you're telling me, okay, I'm justified, but okay, now I better start showing some works because if I don't have the right works, I will go to hell. Uh, I need to prove it. You know, you say you're a believer, prove it. Okay, you know, well, that doesn't help my sense of assurance of salvation, does it? And and so that's a, a practical effect of this error in that it kind of uh, undermines the significance of justification by faith alone. You're, it means, like, it's as though they say, yeah, you have to believe... And by grace alone, you're given this something or other. We call it justification. What is that? You know, like, who cares? It doesn't matter because <laughs> it doesn't have any real effect. It's as though people are forgetting the meaning 
the significance, the implications, the effects of justification. What does that do for you? And that gets back to the initial question. How does this doctrine apply to my practical Christian life? How does it affect me? And with this error, I mean, one immediate effect is, or one difference in the effect is that if you believe in in final salvation by works, you've, you, in practicality, you've nullified assurance of salvation. You wake up each day not really knowing for sure if you're going to pass muster on Judgment Day. And you start being a little bit uncertain about that. And then that, what does that do? It kind of undermines joy, you know, hope. Paul talks about having the full assurance of hope and rejoicing in hope of the glory to come in Romans 5. And, and so it's subtle, but in, our, in the psychology of the ordinary Christian in practice, final salvation by works vitiates, undermines, nullifies that confidence, that full assurance of hope. And then that affects what you're really willing to do for the Lord. You're not sure you're going to heaven. And suddenly, and then the work, you know, how does that affect the nature of your obedience? Now you're trying to do deeds in practice, in practicality. You start thinking about, okay, I've got to have works that will pass muster and prove my faith and give me assurance. So I'm going to start doing works like a Roman Catholic does works in order to be worthy. <laughs> you don't, you're not doing works now because you're so grateful because you're certain you're going to heaven because that issue is settled. No, it's not settled. And it depends on your works. So if you believe in the biblical doctrine of justification by faith, you have the issue of heaven settled. And that's what you... That's the thing to understand in this doctrine. What the significance of justification is for the believer is you have been bestowed with the righteousness of Christ himself. You have been imputed with the righteousness of Christ because he's, he's switched places with you. He's your substitute. So he has been imputed with your guilt and you have been imputed with his righteousness all because of the atonement of his death on the cross. And, and so the issue of eternal life is settled. You have the righteousness of God. So therefore, now that God no longer has any cause to be angry with you, the wrath of God has been satisfied. Therefore, there's peace between you and God. There's reconciliation. That's the the establishment of peace. So God is at peace with you. That's really what it's about. <laughs> I mean, we, we could feel peaceful toward God, maybe, maybe not. That's not it, what's really important is whether or not God is at peace with you, and he's no longer full of wrath toward us as sinners. So if God is no longer in a state of wrath toward you, but he's, he's reconciled toward you, and he's already done the hard thing, which is sacrifice his son, so that's already done, and, he's, and you're no longer his enemy. Uh, as Paul says in Romans 5, okay, you know, if, if, 
when you are enemies, he was willing to send his son to die for you. Now that you're his friend, so to speak, you're reconciled, and he doesn't need to sacrifice his son, how, how hard is it for him to um, preserve you and keep you unto eternal life? How likely is it that now he's going to kick you out of heaven because you're not good enough? You weren't good enough when he sent his son to die for you. You were much worse then. <laughs> now you're reconciled. He's no longer angry with you. So why would he not let you into heaven? Why is he, why is he still requiring some works to satisfy his, you know, his standard in some sense? Maybe reduced sense. I mean, it's reduced down to just prove you have faith. Don't keep all the Mosaic law and be perfect morally. Just, just do this amount of work so that you show that you have real faith. Same idea, but just reduced in terms of the strictness of it. And so now it's just like, it's as though Christ died for our sins, atoned for our sins completely once and for all. Ah, but there's still something left over for you to do. It's like he, he, he satisfied almost everything. There's just a little bit more you've got to do. Just a little bit. You just prove that you have faith. That's all. It's not that hard. Sorry. Salvation by works. He's just, that's nullifying the gospel. So if, if he sacrificed his own son when we were enemies under his wrath because we were full-fledged, absolute, rotten sinners, now that you're counted righteous and you're reconciled with God and he doesn't have to sacrifice his son in order to allow you to go to heaven or to keep you in the faith, why, why now is it uncertain? Why is it not settled that you're going to heaven? Why is it still re- are you being required to do some works to satisfy him? So this error of final salvation by works misunderstands and neglects, sort of just overlooks, whitewashes over the significance and the meaning of justification, what it is and what it does for us. Well, that's really the, the guts of everything I had to say to you today. Um, it's funny how I spent a long time preparing, and you guys who, who heard me teach have, have seen me do this before. I have 17 pages of outline on justification that I, I finally put together a lot of my notes from different times I've taught on this, and then I added this stuff about final salvation by works. And I'm, like, ready to write a whole book. It's turning into, a, like, a 300-page book on uh, justification, which I would like to write if I had time. But um, – and I had a certain order in which I was going to go through, and I just, like, ignored everything I wrote here. I didn't even take off the paperclip, and I – I cut to the chase right near the end, which was all about John Piper's heresy and and final salvation by works. Uh, But I'm glad, because at least you know, while you're all still awake, (laughs) what this is all about and what the real point of this sermon is. I want to call it a sermon. Uh, This is a, a serious error. 
And uh, I'm kind of stunned and dismayed and disappointed that I'm seeing it among evangelical, even reformed Christians. And there's some, there's some who don't know it's out there even. They, just, they think John Piper is a good guy and they just accept what, it, what he says. But then he doesn't always talk about this subject. So it's, uh, you pick up, you hear somebody say, hey, have you heard about John Piper? And then you say, what? And you say, go read up and you realize, oh. And then you look somewhere else and you realize someone else is teaching it too. And then someone else is teaching it. And you're like, what's going on here? It's more like spreading like a disease. Um, but let me go back. We'll just spend a few minutes now going about this in a more orderly way. I want to teach you uh, or review for you this doctrine of justification, why we need it, <coughs> uh, a brief summary, what it is, and, and, and how we know it's true. And then finally, maybe if we have time, just maybe giving you a few quotes from John Piper and reviewing again this, this mistake. Why do we need justification? What is our need? What is the problem, so to speak, facing each of us as human beings such that we're in need of righteousness? Well, the need we have is based on the fact that we're sinners, of course. We're guilty. And that's really the core of it. We have a, a tendency to sin. We have what's called moral corruption. We have a sinful nature, so we do the wrong things. But key to this is that when we transgress God's laws or his commandments, we, when we sin, we incur guilt. We become guilty. And that's not just a feeling, subjective guilt, but it's external to us. It's objectively there. We are guilty. It's like even in a human court. A, a court may decide that you're guilty of some crime. And you say, well, I don't feel guilty. I feel like I did the right thing. doesn't matter. doesn't matter how you feel. As far as the law is concerned and the system and the system of justice and the court, you are guilty. And so there are going to be penalties and you're going to experience those penalties whether or not you feel like you should experience them. Now, the need, though, doesn't just begin with maybe some point in your life when you remember you started to commit sins and do some certain bad things. You might remember at some age, you know, some, when you were a kid, that you started to do some naughty things and you knew you were doing the wrong things and you started to feel some sense of guilt and you just said, yeah, I'll ignore that <laughs> and still do the wrong things. Um, in fact, the need goes back in history all the way back to Adam and to the fall as we're familiar from Genesis chapter 3. And the result of that fall of Adam and Eve, particularly Adam, was that all of his descendants, including us, were made sinners by nature. And Paul talks about this in Romans 5, and we see it in the Psalms and other places. Uh, there is a kind of um, inheritance of sinfulness 
as a result of Adam's place as the head, so to speak, of the race of mankind. Now, it's not just that we inherit this tendency to sin, the moral corruption, but according to particularly Romans 5, we inherit guilt, the guilt of Adam's sin. And this is why death is universal. This is what Paul talks about again in Romans 5. Why does everyone die? Why is it that we know, even before a person is born, before a baby is born, we know the baby is ultimately mortal and will die? Uh, you know, after a living a whole life, but still, it doesn't matter. It's not as though it's up for grabs here, a question. I'm not sure. Maybe this baby will avoid sin and not commit any sins, and maybe this, this baby's going to live forever. No. <laughs> even before a baby's done anything, we know the baby's going to die. It's already kind of a settled fact. That's kind of what Paul gets at in, in Romans chapter 5. The universality of, sin, of death, where does that come from? It, it comes from this guilt that comes down from Adam. So we're born corrupt morally, but also born guilty. Death is a result of guilt. Death is a result of unrighteousness. If a person is perfectly righteous, like Christ, then the person would not be worthy of death. So death comes about through losing righteousness. Now, this problem is maybe deeper than a lot of people appreciate. A person might naively think, well, I've got sin, I'm a a sinner, I have a sinful nature, but if I could just sort of like work up enough willpower in my practical life, I could overcome sin. You see this today in the secular world, like how-to books about how to be more disciplined, how to be more productive with your day, and you just got to, you know, at some point there's there's some how-tos, some techniques you can apply that help. But in the end, you need some self-discipline. You need to like get down and apply yourself. You need to use willpower to do it, even to use the right techniques. This goes back to actually this kind of this familiar with the, the names of various heresies. That kind of goes back to a heresy called Pelagianism in the fourth century. Uh, Pelagius versus Augustine. But the idea is, like, if, if you could just ignore this inheritance of sinfulness and of guilt, then you could just say each person is sort of morally neutral, could kind of choose to do good, choose to do wrong. And so you just sort of teach people, give them more law, educate them better, and then they'll use that willpower to do right more, more and more. So just preach the law. You know, hit them with the law more. Hit them harder with it so that they will use that willpower and do what's right. That's the solution to man's problems, why man does wrong. So that's an entirely naive and unbiblical and flawed way of thinking about the problem of sin. The moral corruption 
that comes about from Adam <coughs> is, is a deep kind of a thing in the sense that as sinners, we want to sin. Well, and what is sin? Sin is violation of God's commandments or violation of his law. So if you start teaching a sinner and giving a sinner more and more law, you're giving kind of the fuel to the sinner to sin more. Because the sin, the sinful nature thrives on laws because it's more stuff to break, (laughs) more targets to hit. There's pleasure found in violation of God's law just for the sake of violating God's law. That's the pleasure. That's what sin likes. There doesn't have to be some other advantage gained. Like, uh, yes, there are crimes and sins where people say, steal money. And so there's pleasure that's found in that sin. And people think, well, it's because you just got yourself a bunch of free money. Yeah, that's part of it. But there's real ex- the real excitement about it is the breaking of the law. So that there's a real hook there. And that's like, I want to steal again because I got a real high out of that. That's a, that's a rush. That was, a, that was real um, exciting. So a crime, likewise a sin, might seem to be meaningless. But the meaning in the end for the sinner is in the sin or the crime itself. Another way of putting that up is, and we see this in Romans chapter 7. I'm kind of summarizing what we find in Romans here, particularly when Paul describes himself uh, in dealing with his own sinful nature. Basically says that, um, I didn't know what sin was like until I got the commandment. And then when I got the commandment, Wow, I started to sin like mad. Like the more you, t- the mo- and he says later in, in First Corinthians, he says how the strength of sin is the law. And another way of putting this is that sin, our sinfulness, takes pleasure in acquiring guilt. Now, we think that's, that sounds wrong. I mean, and when you are thinking in terms of God's law and righteousness, you'd say, well, guilt's a bad thing, and naturally I want to avoid it. But you could imagine somebody who's evil, right? You could imagine somebody who's so bad that the person takes pleasure in becoming more guilty. It's like, you know, like someone who likes to roll around in the mud. <laughs> I want to get dirty. I have this, this fun. I'm not afraid of it. Well, if you can imagine that about a, a really bad person, remember, our sinfulness is just like that, is the really bad person. We have in ourselves the really bad person. That's that, and that's the thing that's so offensive to the world. That's the thing that we become more and more aware of in our Christian lives. We first 
yeah, we acknowledge it when we first become Christians, but then as we understand God's word more and understand ourselves more clearly, we begin to see our own sinfulness, and we start to feel like we're worse than we were when I first became a Christian. That's not the case. It's not that we're worse, but we see more clearly our sinfulness. And deep down inside of us, there is a problem that we never really saw clearly before. It's that we have this, this kind of evil dimension to our character. And the dynamic here is the key. And I, that's why I'm focusing on this particular uh, aspect of Paul's teaching in Romans. And I'm sorry, we're not reading a passage. I feel really bad that I'm just, like, talking. But normally I go through verses. But I'm summarizing. And many of you, if you've read Romans enough, you know what I'm saying is right there in Romans 7. Uh, but I'm trying to quickly summarize a lot of the whole letter. But I'm, what I'm trying to emphasize is the dynamic here the kind of cause and effect that's in us because of our sinfulness. Our sinful nature, or the sinfulness of of an unsaved person in particular, thrives on law because the sinfulness in us thrives on becoming guilty. It's not trying to avoid guilt. Sinfulness is not trying to avoid guilt. It's trying to, it enjoys it. It feeds on it. It doesn't care about the consequences. We, are, you know, officially sanctified Christian, we care about it, of course, and we're fighting that. But in us is the flesh, this sort of, this thing in us that's like crazy. It's, it's irrational in a way. And we're, we're kind of, you know, we have to fight against it by the Holy Spirit, of course, and by God's word. But... You can see by what I'm saying, this problem is, is, is pretty deep. It's, it's kind of it's scary deep <laughs> because you realize it's, how, how, I can't fix myself in a simple way. I mean, the problem is me. It's not like something about me. It's not about like my education or whether I'm poor or rich or this race or that race. Or it's not something about me. It's me. It's that inner self that makes choices and ultimately the finger that's pointing you know at the guilty is ends up pointing right at me in my soul because it's me i'm the one that's responsible if i am you know the sinner is the person himself not someone else or something else so the problem of sin is 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 what they call radical radical comes from the latin word uh Radix or radix, which means root. If a problem is radical, it means it's at the very root. And sin is a radical problem because it's at the root of our being. So we can't say, like a lot of people say, yeah, I make mistakes, I do some wrong things, but I'm basically I'm a good person. You know, at the bottom, deep inside somewhere, there's a, and I want to tap into that. Help me find that inner goodness, that bait. No. Sorry. You look inside, dig down. If, you, if you're honest, and the natural man is not honest, but if you were honest, <laughs> you would end up digging up a lot of dirt, a lot of evil. And it would be horrifying, and you would be offended at yourself. So I stress this dynamic because now we can begin to appreciate 
the solution. So now let's turn to the solution. The solution is justification. Justification delivers us from this law of sin and death, as Paul calls it, or this dynamic in which our sinfulness thrives on guilt. The doctrine of justification says that we are counted righteous in God's sight. In other words, the guilty standing is removed and we're given a righteous standing. And this happens through the imputation of the righteousness of Christ to me and to you, my guilt being imputed to him through the substitutionary atonement. And this transaction is entirely by grace, through faith alone, just believing, in Christ. So we're imputed with the righteousness of Christ. In other words, the the right standing or the, the perfect uprightness of Christ is counted to our account. We're not infused. It's a legal thing. It's not some, something that's infused in us. We're not made good persons in justification. That's sanctification. But in justification, we're not given some inner holiness, some inner goodness, some grace. We're not imparted with some quality internally to us. The righteousness is external to us. And so, having been imputed with Christ's righteousness, then we're declared to be righteous, legally. Like the judge says, oh, okay, I see, yes, you, you have righteousness. It's not your righteousness, it's Christ's righteousness, but it's been counted to your account. Lucky you. <laughs> so... I hereby declare you to be righteous. Have a nice day. You're free to go. The grounds of this righteousness is not you, but it's Christ, particularly the sacrifice of Christ, the atonement, the propitiation through the blood of Christ. So the blood of Christ is the ground of of your justification. And Christ and this imputation is given... As a gift, it's by grace entirely. But having been given to you, okay, now it's a legal thing. It's You are now righteous in God's sight. And now there are consequences of that, that this you follow legally. And since this is given to you as a gift, it has to be received through merely trusting in Christ. You start doing works now to, in order to be sort of worthy, to be qualified to receive this gift, well, then you're not treating it like a gift. You're treating it like you have to reimburse God in some way. You're, you're paying him back, or you're, you're trying to merit, in effect. You might not say you're meriting, but you start, like, you know, if somebody gives you a gift and says, well, gee, can I give you, like, a 10 bucks, you know, to, toward, you know, alleviate the cost? You say, hey, it was a gift, pal. Like, just take it. Take it or leave it. Like, don't, don't insult me. <laughs> By giving me ten bucks, it cost me five thousand dollars. <laughs> you know, I'm not gonna like. Don't take away my my generosity here, my giftiness <laughs> toward you. If I make up a word, God is glorifying Himself in that He is gracious. So He's glorifying His grace, as Paul says in Ephesians one. Uh, 
Okay. So, so, so what? So that's the that's the gist of the doctrine. So, okay, we believe in Christ, and through faith alone, we accept this gift, and we're imputed with Christ's righteousness. We're declared righteous. We're forgiven of all our sins. Therefore, um, how does that affect this problem that I just described? Well, the strength of sin is the law, right? The, the problem of sin is that it thrives on guilt. But through Christ, we've been freed by grace from guilt. And our relationship with God is not based on reducing our guilt by obedience. That dynamic of obtaining a, a relationship with God by reducing guilt or, or dealing with guilt has been solved already. Christ has done that for us. So now what's sin going to feed on? Where's the power of sin? It's gone. The thing that energizes sin was this whole business of law and then keeping law and, and guilt and, and, well, gee, I can get more guilt. Well, guilt's always solved for you. It's always taken away. But it's very frustrating to sin, <laughs> in a sense. The sinful nature can't satisfy itself because it's no longer able to generate guilt. And so Paul says we're no longer under the law, but more than that, he says... In, in Romans 6, he says, you're no longer under the power of sin, the dominion of sin, because you're not under law, but under grace. And that seems counterintuitive, right? You think, well, gee, I, I, I need the law in order to instruct me and to point me away from sin. It should be rather that <coughs> you need law. Tell me I'm under the law, because the law is going to like keep me in line. No doesn't work like that uh, because you're already a sinner so you need to be freed from the law as a rule of life or death guilt being the thing that would give you death and since we're no longer under the law in that sense that dynamic that that causal power of law has been nullified. And that's why we say that when you become a Christian, you're no longer under the dominion of sin. You still have sinfulness. You're still a sinner, and so you will still sin. But that (coughs) domination of sin in your life has been taken away. How did that happen? Well, justification had a big part to play in that. Of course, you're given the Holy Spirit. That's a whole other story, but Justification itself plays a key role in empowering us to overcome sin because justification has, has undercut the power of sin because it's removed guilt from our lives. Uh, therefore, sanctification 
cannot begin until you're justified. That's why we say a lost person, can, he can try as hard as he wants throughout his whole life to be a good person. It's never going to work. He's never going to make progress. There will be no, there's no sanctification. There's no progress at all in sanctification for the unbeliever. Why? Because that person is not justified. So the sinful nature is still there and is still feeding on and is still empowered on by the guilt of his sin. He needs to be freed from the guilt in order to be freed from the law in that sense. And then the dominion of sin has been broken and sanctification can now begin. But it's only then. So is, sanctific- I mean, is justification you know, relevant for the, for the Christian life? Absolutely. It's essential. Without justification, there's no sanctification. It's not just that sanctification follows and we want to keep them in the right compartments. It's, it's that there's a kind of a cause and effect relationship. And you flip it around and it just doesn't work. Catholic Church will flip it around. They so have to be sanctified in order to be justified. And they just don't understand. They don't understand the economics, so to speak, of of sin and guilt and righteousness, and uh, it's just it's just fantasy. Uh, they're in a fantasy world regarding the sinfulness of man. So that's justification. So we saw what the problem is, the need we have, and how deep it is, and then we've seen now how justification addresses that deep need, the deep problem of guilt and how that empowers sin. And, and now, uh, that can help us to appreciate uh, some of the characteristics, in particular some of the, um, the consequences or the eternal effects of justification. And we're, we're running out of time, so, and we've already talked about that, but, um, but just to sh- see how this fits in... Uh, In Romans 5, and maybe we could just turn there finally as we come near to the end here. In Romans 5, Paul says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, that's not subjective feelings of peace, but the warfare is over. You might still feel that, like, because you're kind of confused, you might still feel like you're at war with God and there's no peace, and you don't feel peaceful. That's a, that's a, that's a problem, and there's answers for that. But it kind of gets back to just remembering objectively, okay, forget about your feelings. You know, in, the real, in the real world, objectively, <laughs> we have peace with God. God is reconciled to us through Christ. So just trust, trust in Christ, and you'll, you'll know. <laughs> And then he says, by whom we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So now we have access to God the Father through Christ. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now that's a very compact phrase, but what he's saying is we have, we have a, a full assurance about our future salvation, our final salvation, specifically our glorification. This is not the glorification of God. This is glory given to us by God so that we are glorified and given a body in our resurrection 
that is like unto Christ's glorious body. That's from Philippians 3, verse 21. Or, yeah, I think it's verse 21. And, uh, and so, knowing, not just sort of like wishing, but knowing, because we have full assurance of confidence, hope with a capital H. Not hope so, maybe so, but like looking forward to it, because we know it's coming. But we have that kind of confidence about the fact that we are going to heaven and we are going to be raised from the dead bodily and we're going to be glorified like Christ. He's the firstborn among many brethren, Romans 8. And therefore, we rejoice. (laughs) You think about that and you think about death and you say, well, death doesn't seem quite so bad anymore. And if, th- if you think that way about death, that, that cheers you up, you know? It, it, like, if all things in your life, the, the worst, the final thing is that finally we're all going to die, and then what's the meaning of my life and everything I've lived for and done, and it's all meaningless. Well, no, not in Christ. Your labor in the Lord is not in vain, he says in 1 Corinthians 15. And so you, you have this hope about future glory, like your version 2.0 of yourself. And then you say, yeah, I'm having a pretty good day. Now, you, know, you start to feel good. You, ha- you start to rejoice just naturally. That's, that's sort of the cause and effect of this. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation works patience and patience experience and so on. So, and hope does not make ashamed. So we have tribulations, but in, in the end, tribulations just teach us things, edifies us, and we learn more clearly to have hope. <laughs> it just strengthens our hope in the end. And then hope won't disappoint us. We won't feel ashamed uh, because uh, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. So we have an awareness of God's love for us, given to us by the Holy Spirit. So does that sound like like your salvation, your final salvation is up in the air a little bit, or does it sound like it's settled? It sounds like it's done, right? It sounds to me like if you're rejoicing in the hope of being glorified, now, just simply as a result of being justified, and that's the connection, you see, that's the key here. It's because you've been justified, therefore we know certain things. So, Justification is key because it is the foundation for our hope. Once you're justified, that's that's like game over. Game, everything's done. You've won. Therefore, I think that when we start to add conditions, and here I'm, I'm thinking of what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, chapter 5. Once you start adding conditions... And saying, yes, to, to come to, to be saved. Okay, you're justified by faith alone, but to be saved, I'm going to make a distinction now. I'm going to separate <laughs> salvation, going to heaven from justification. Paul's, Paul would say, what? Are you insane? <laughs> How can you separate going to heaven from justification? That, that's, have you not been listening to me? <laughs> We're talking about salvation, getting, getting to heaven. You have to be crazy to start separating final salvation from justification. It's settled at justification. Okay, but now, 
for them, they start thinking, oh, I can make that distinction. And that allows me, as a heretic, <laughs> to start saying, you have to, not only do you have to believe in Christ, but you need to have fruit. Yeah, okay, we say, yeah, you should have fruit, and yeah, and if you don't have fruit, then you don't really have faith. And say, yeah, yeah, but, and now you need to have that fruit in order to get to heaven. Well, what do you mean you have to have it to get to heaven? It's necessary. What do you mean it's necessary? God looks at your life and looks to see if you, you, you merit, <laughs> use the, the, the controversial word, you know, see if you're worthy and you merit the title Christian, title believer. Are you entitled to be called a believer? God's going to look at your works to see if you're entitled to that, that word. Oh, so now I've got to do works in addition to believing in order to get to heaven. That's a different gospel. Like that's, when I saw that in Piper's writings, and I've got quotes, which I'm not giving you here because I ran out of time, but um, when I, sometimes when you read something like that, you think, that doesn't sound right. Ask yourself, is that the gospel that I believe? And then ask yourself, how many gospels are there? <laughs> Galatians chapter 1. There's only one. Somebody comes with another gospel. It's not another gospel. It's something else. <laughs> it's a false gospel. And so you just, you, you have this intuitive awareness because you, you came to Christ with the right gospel and you, you start to sense Oh, John Piper is saying something, and that sounds like that's not the gospel that I'm aware of, because you're, ta- you're talking about something that's gospel-related to me now, about my getting to heaven. And at, at that point, you stop, and you say, no, this is a different gospel. And then alarm, bar- alarm bells go off, because like, like that sound I just heard, <laughs> um, which says stop. But at that point, you... Alarm bells go off, and you realize this is a false gospel. And so in that Sunday school class I was telling you about, at one point I said, I had to raise my hand and say, hey, uh, you know, said his name. That's a false gospel. <laughs> like, you are teaching a false gospel. Are you aware of what you're saying? Are you in, I felt like Galatians 3, you know, who has bewitched you? <laughs> Have you gone nuts here? And, and so uh, this is something, of course, you can tell it, it sort of animates me because it, it gets to that, this core doctrine of justification. And it seems as though in, in every generation it needs to be taught again because it's not something that we just naturally think up. We have to read Romans carefully again and again, and we have to think about it. And over years it sinks in as, as central to our Christian life. Because it's the thing that is the foundation for all of our sanctification. All right. Well, I knew it was going to be a long one, but um, I think I got it within about an hour, <laughs> um, as usual. Thank you for your patience. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for the scriptures um, which can penetrate our understanding as we read, sometimes read over and over again the same book or the same passage, trying to follow the, the flow of thought of, say, the Apostle Paul in Romans or Galatians. Lord, thank you for the scriptures that teach us the gospel in such clarity and such depth as well. And thank you, Lord, for providing us a salvation
that reaches to the very core of our, of our problem with sin. And we pray this, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen.